following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Turn with me to um, Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged their halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came upon him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants... I give this land from there to there. I read it out a few times first at home, and it was the Kenites, the Perizzites, the thing, and and I started falling asleep, so I wouldn't put you through that. Look, a few years ago, my wife and I, um, we spent a year teaching English in South Korea. It was a big career change for me. I, I, I work in financial services, so I'm not a teacher by trade, and my wife is a trained primary teacher. But we just thought we'd take a kind of a gap year, We'd go overseas and um, we'd just do something completely different. And it was great, uh, but wow, culture shock, eh? Um, Very modern and westernized country, but I've never had culture shock like that in my life. Um, And it's all the little things you just take for granted when you live in a country you don't understand when you move there. So I think I had the same thing coming to New Zealand, coming from South Africa. Uh, I remember one night I went out for dinner with my co-teachers and we had this, uh, this traditional Korean barbecue meal. So we all sat on the floor and uh, if you know anything about Korean food, it's hot and spicy. So we had all this meat and, and all this uh, kimchi and, and really just red chili pepper paste was on everything. And by the end of the meal, man, I was hanging out for a bowl of ice cream. Oh, it's just nothing like that to stop the chili. So um, my teachers turned to me and said, oh, would you like some dessert? So I went, oh, yeah. Go, get it. Go as fast as you can. Get it now, you know. I'm thinking, oh, bring me a nice bowl of ice cream. Um, 
and this is probably one of the bigger culture shocks I had. Uh, what I got for dessert was, was not ice cream. In fact, it's the furthest thing you could get from ice cream. I got a bowl of uh, cold noodles. Um, and it was this, this, this big bowl of noodles. And the noodles were in a ball. And they were gray. And it was covered in a broth that looked like dishwater. And there was ice in the broth. It was like a cold noodle soup. And this big dollop of chili paste again on the top. And I'm thinking, whoa. Oh, man. Um, and, you know, my heart just sank. I'm sitting there thinking, ice cream, ice cream, ice cream. And all I got was this bowl of noodles. And the teachers all sitting there looking at me like. And I'm sitting there going, okay. So I, I had a couple noodles, and that was all I could do, you know. And to this day, I'm amazed that anyone, anywhere, considers that a dessert. It's just not. It's just not. But, you know, if I'd grown up there, totally normal. Everyone just, just loves that kind of stuff over there, and it's, it's what you grow up with, and it's so normal. So, you know, when we come to the Old Testament, I think, you know, we might feel a similar way. I really wanted to embrace Korean culture. I wanted to get to understand this country I was living in, uh, but at the same time, I felt it pushing me away. It was foreign and hard to relate to. Um, and we come to the Old Testament, and we want to embrace it as God's Word. It's part of our heritage as Christians. It's, it's, it's the Word of God. But in the same time, you might come to a passage like Genesis 15 and, and feel like you've been served a cold, icy noodle broth for dessert. feels weird and strange. I mean, look, we've got animal sacrifice in this story. And we've got visions and dreams. We've got God revealing himself as a blazing torch and a smoking fire pot. This is not your everyday passage of Scripture. But don't worry. I will contend today that this is not as weird as it seems. In fact, it's probably the, one of the most foundational passages of Scripture out there. Everything in the story we read today is about undoing the sin of Adam and Eve, undoing the curse of the fall, launching God's new creation plan into the present. That's what this is all about. So, up to this point in Genesis, where have we been? What's happened? First, I guess, 14 chapters of Genesis, all you see are just, well, actually, the first 11, let's go there. First 11 chapters of Genesis, what you see is story after story of the destructive spiral of evil in the world. It's just getting bigger and bigger and worse and worse. You've got Adam and Eve in the garden who disobeyed God. They left the garden. Then you've got Cain killing his brother Abel, and you've got uh, things getting so bad that God wipes the world out in a flood. Um, and then after the flood, as humanity repopulates, they unite um, not around God and following Him, but they unite around themselves and to make a name for themselves. And they build this tower so that they can be like God and kind of kick Him off the throne. And then the world is just in this, this chaotic mess. It's a big mess at the moment. Out of that mess, God calls Abram. Promises to bless him, promises him a family line, and that through his family, the world will be blessed. Now, that wasn't just something nice for Abram, but it was part of God's larger plan to start undoing the fall, undoing the curse of Adam and the sin of Adam, to put the world back to rights. And that'll take you all the way up to about Genesis 14. By the time you get to Genesis 15, not a lot has actually changed. The world is still in a chaotic, messy state. Abram's followed God. He's taken on board the promise. He's left his country and gone to the land that God will show him. That's kind of where we're at at the moment. Abram's nearly 100 years old. 
him and his wife are well past the age of bearing children and starting to think, how is God going to come through for us and give us a family? And I think you can start to sense a bit of Abram's frustration in the story. You know, apart from moving countries, not a lot else has changed. So they're having a hard time believing that God's going to make good on his word. So God speaks first in the story. Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your great reward. And, you know, Abram, straight off the bat, doesn't listen, doesn't hear anything God has to say. All he does is go and, like, you know, hey, what do you mean? Look at my circumstances. He gives this great protest, looks at his household, his body, his current situation, and basically says to God, how on earth can I believe what you're saying? God, how are you going to bless this world through my family line? I'm nearly 100 years old. My servant, this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, he's going to inherit everything. My family line's going to end with me and Sarah, and that's it. I really like in the story that God wasn't phased by Abram's protest. God didn't condemn him and say, oh, ye of little faith. God didn't tell him, just try harder, Abram. Try harder to believe. You'll make it work. You know what God did? He restated the promise. Your servant will not be your heir. You will have a son from your own flesh and blood. He will be your heir. In other words, God just said again, no, I'm going to make good on my promise. And then you get verse 6 in the story, which kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. God speaks, uh, Abram kind of protests, God speaks again, and then, oh, Abram, now he believes. First he didn't, then he did. I don't know, it kind of came out of nowhere. What changed? I just, um, I think, you know, we, we'd probably understand it more if, if the text said, not, not Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, but we'd, we'd understand more if it was, well, Abram thought about what God said, he went away for a couple of days, he wrestled with it, and came back to God and said, oh, right, fine, I give in, I'll, uh, I'll just, I'll take this blind leap into the dark and I'll follow you. I'd understand that more. But suddenly Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I just want to spend a bit of time unpacking that verse. I think um, that's really the, the hinge on which this whole story turns, because what you have here is you've got two people being contrasted. It's quite implicit in the story, but you've got, you've got Abram here, he believed God, and then you've got Adam. Now, Adam's sin was that he didn't believe God, and not in the sense that he didn't believe God existed, or he suddenly went from being believer to atheist. What, Abram, what Adam didn't believe was he listened to the voice of the serpent. That's Adam's unbelief. Did God really say not to eat the fruit of the tree? See, that's the voice Adam listened to. The voice Abram listened to was the voice of God, and he believed God. Now, for Adam, what he chose to do was to reorient his own life around another voice, around the voice of the serpent, which really meant he chose to go his own way and live life apart from God. Yeah, but unlike Adam, Abram here has submitted himself to the Word and to the revelation of God, and his life has been reoriented around the voice of God. And this is what God credited to him as righteousness. If you have your life reoriented around the voice of God, around the word of God, God now sees you as righteous in his sight. Righteousness, what a tricky phrase again, like you say. You know, we're used to thinking of it as uh, maybe a thing you can hold, a, 
thing you might possess and take in your hands. But it's a, it's a status in the story. It's a change of status that God brings about in Abram. We're also used to thinking of righteousness as uh, morally upright, uh, being, being kind of perfect. Uh, you know, we, we use it in a negative term. We kind of look at someone who thinks too highly of themselves and go, <laughs> he's a little bit self-righteous. It's the way we tend to think of righteousness. The problem is, you know, what, if we, when we go down that line of thinking, this whole story just turns into legal fiction, just makes it a, a farce, because Abram was not some great picture of morality. He wasn't the most upright man. In the next chapter, him, he's listening to the voice of his wife say, why don't you sleep with your servant Hagar, and maybe she can give us a son. Probably not the most upright man in the world. Um, he's not a model of morality. But I think it comes down to how we understand uh, the word righteousness and God changing his status by declaration. This happens all the time, um, you know, changing status by declaration. Um, think about the last wedding you were at. What's the thing that they say at the end of the ceremony? I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now, for those who've been married, can you tell me, after the ceremony, uh, has, has your partner magically changed personalities and become this wonderfully brand new person after that declaration? Raise your hand if that's true. I see one in front there. Stop lying, Mark. If your hand went up, you're lying. All right. It's a change in status by declaration. The two people at the ceremony, they haven't magically changed personalities. They've got the same quirks they had before, same faults still speak with the same accent. They still smell as bad if they don't shower. That doesn't change. What has changed, though? Their status, their identity. Before God, they are now one flesh. They're no longer two single people. Before the law, they are now husband and wife. They can never again say, I was never married. If they get divorced... Or they, you know, they, they would have to say, I've been previously married. If uh, one of the partners died, they become a widow. It's another change in status. Now think about Abram and Adam again. You've got these two guys, and they're being contrasted again in the story. You've got, you know, Abram's, God's declaration over Abram was righteousness, new life, fulfillment of the promise. In fact, it was a child out of a body that was as good as dead what the promise led to. What was God's declaration of Adam? Adam's sin in the garden? Cursed is the ground for your sake, Adam. From the dust you came to the dust you shall return. That's God's declaration or verdict over Adam. In other words, Adam's sin meant that God's declaration over him was to give him the penalty for his sin. Abram's belief in God, Abram reorienting his life around the voice and word of God was to declare him righteous lead to new life, launching God's new creation plan in the present, putting the world back to rights, blessing the world through his family line, a son out of a body that was as good as dead. I think you can start to see how that might be relevant to us today, right? Orienting your life around the voice of God and having that being declared as righteousness. Because I think... The more I, I read the papers and watch movies and, and hang out with people that are not Christian, I see that there's a raft of voices out there that are competing for our attention. There are a raft of voices that are trying to define us, tell us who we are and what it actually means to be a human. And uh, 
the most prevalent voice out there that I find at the moment, the one I come against all the time, uh, is this voice of secular human, humanism. Anyone come up against that? Do you think that's prevalent? I read a, a column in the New Zealand Herald a few weeks back, and um, I'll just read it here. It really sums up what, uh, what the, the mood and feel of what secular humanism is and the voice that it, it speaks to our culture. The author wrote, We adhere determinately to the time-consuming venture of finding rational, scientific explanations for events that occur. Because the alternative, that life is terrifyingly random and meaningless, it provokes an existential crisis. It makes us feel powerless and nauseous in an unfeeling cosmos. Once we let go of the doctrine of perfectibility, that the world can be made good, well, we have nothing to hold on to. I've spent my life being told to stop taking it so personally. And finally, I realize that's as much truth as you're ever going to get. Bold words. It's like the author saying, um, look, if, sorry man, if bad things are happening to you, it's just bad luck. There's no point. There's no meaning. Stop asking why. Just get on with it. Enjoy your life. If you've got this hope of a God trying to put the world back to rights, <laughs> wishful thinking, man. Get on with it. That's the voice of secular humanism. Telling you just to do what makes you happy. Now, I think that voice of, of, of secular humanism, it, it sounds fine and, and, and nice and reasonable if you've got a comfortable job, if you own your own home, if you've got a nice family and you live in a peaceful country, then, you know, why not? Why wouldn't it sound reasonable? In fact, it sounds reasonable to people who've got the ability to craft their own version of reality, one that's really good at masking the depths of depravity in the world. I think, you know, for more than a billion people in this world who live on less than $2 a day, they don't get that luxury. They have reality served up to them every day. They can't disappear into a smartphone. They can't uh, take a, uh, an overseas holiday. They can't even take a sick day from work because if they don't work, they don't eat. The voice of secular humanism, I think it's actually got nothing to say to a world that is deeply stemmed with systemic injustice. It's got nothing to say to that. It offers no hope to those whose lives are dominated by hardship, by poverty, or suffering at the hands of tyrants in the third world. Why should a tyrant change if he's doing what makes him happy? A lot of people who subscribe to this view, I, I guess, you know, I've read some articles that said, oh, most people are kind of uncomfortable with the logical conclusion of the, that viewpoint. Yeah, when you get to craft your own version of reality, you can easily sweep it under the rug. The tyrant has no reason to change. It works for him, makes him happy. If anything, the voice of secular humanism, I think it leaves the world in a pitiful state, the same pitiful state it was in before. It allows evil to continue unabated. Do you hear a different voice in Genesis 15? A voice that speaks to the rich and to the poor, saying that the world is not a cold and unfeeling cosmos. You are not a cosmic orphan. 
A voice that speaks to the oppressed and says that justice is coming. And this world can be made good. Because the world is good. God said it was good. It's sin and evil and death that have corrupted the world. It's the voice we see in Jesus, the voice we hear in Jesus. God's most powerful voice. Because in Jesus, God has broken the power of evil and death in the world. God has handed it his marching orders. He's triumphed over it, made a spectacle of it. And that means that God's justice now through Jesus can flow out to the world. God's righteousness and goodness can cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's through Jesus that God is moving the world forward to its appointed goal, to a greater glory than what we can see now. And we get to be a part of it by placing our faith and trust in God, by believing God and having our lives reoriented around his word, around his voice. Some of us might uh, be living with voices from the past, uh, or maybe a voice of a parent who is just constantly disappointed with you. You're just never good enough. Is that the voice that drives you? Maybe it's the voice of a failed relationship that uh, has kept you trapped in feelings of guilt and shame and condemnation. It might be the voices of lust or addiction, voices of past mistakes, the business that failed, the job you lost, the bad investment you made. Those voices that keep you up at night and tell you you're worthless, you're nothing, you're a failure, and you'll never succeed. I love the story in Genesis 15 for that fact because you know what God's first thing he said to Abram after he was given this running commentary on Abram's circumstances? This man will not be your heir. In other words, God said, when Abram said, Blah, 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 blah. God's first word was, really, no. No to that voice. A voice that said to Abram, you're too old, Abram. You can't have a child. A voice that said, it's not going to happen. God's never going to come through for you. This man will not be your heir. Was God silencing those voices in Abram's life? And you know, we can't silence the voices of our culture. We can't silence the voices of the mistakes we've made or, uh, you know, or our past or anything like that. We can't silence them through the power of positive thinking or trying harder. You know, like Abram, those voices have got to be silenced by the word of God, by the voice of God and nothing else. I think that's important because we, we often take these Old Testament characters and we hold them up as um, examples of, of faith, you know, heroes of the faith to follow. And you know, we might turn Abram into one of them. You know, he, he really trusted God and um, you know, when things seemed impossible, so so should you. And we kind of turn it into, a, you know, be like this guy, be like that guy. You know, I think, I think there's a problem with that view in, in, in this passage here because Abram's, Abram's faith wasn't some ability he drummed up. It wasn't some power he just unleashed within himself. I think Abram's faith in the story was an absolute miracle. Now think about it. God didn't give him any new information. God, all God did was just reaffirm the promise he had before. But here, Abram's had an encounter with the Word of God. Abram's had an encounter with the life-giving, powerful, new creation-bringing Word that has breathed faith into him. That's because you and I, we cannot manufacture faith. We can't just mentally assent to a few 
doctrines and truths. We can't just turn up to church one Sunday and call it faith. Because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word, and faith comes by the gracious power of God's Word in our lives. It's something God graciously gives to us. So, after believing God, Abram still had uh, the audacity to ask God for a sign of his faithfulness. How can I know that I will possess it? He said, referring to the land that God had promised him. And so God made a covenant with him. Now, the ceremony that, that God got Abram to set up was quite common in the ancient world. Uh, you know, what, what two people making a covenant or a contract uh, would do was they would take some animals, they would kill those animals, and they'd put, them, uh, put the pieces apart, and they'd make a bit of a pathway between those pieces. And what they'd do is, is the two people agreeing to the terms of the, the contract, they'd walk through these animals, sometimes in a figure eight or just straight through the path. And what they'd do is they might recite the terms of that contract, they might recite the agreement together. But the symbolism is brutally clear. What they're saying to each other is, if I don't keep my side of this agreement, and if I fail to be faithful to this agreement, you can cut me into pieces like those animals. Brutal, isn't it? I guess it's a good way of making sure no one's going to make a promise they can't keep. But the symbolism is brutally clear. Here's the interesting bit from the story. Normally, both people who make an agreement have to walk through the animals. What happened to Abram? He fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came upon him. And it was God alone who walked through the animals. Now, Scripture also says at the end here that God made a covenant with Abram. So this wasn't just some fancy trick that God pulled. So what God was saying was, I will be faithful to my side of the bargain, Abram. And because this is a covenant with you, you must be faithful too. But because God alone walked through the animals, if Abram or his family line failed to be faithful to their side of the bargain, God would take the punishment for it. God was taking on the responsibilities of both parties in this agreement. And I will contend for you today that without Jesus, this passage will make no sense. It is still awaiting its fulfillment. Because we know that Abram's family line, the, the nation of Israel, they were unfaithful all the time. You know, they went their own way, in many ways recapitulated the sin of Adam over and over again. They listened to the voices of the culture. They listened to their own voices. They did their own thing many times and eventually paid the price by going off into exile. But in Jesus on the cross... We see God himself taking the punishment for the failure of Abram's family line to live up to this side of the bargain. The failure of the world and the failure of you and I, every time we fail to live up to our true humanness, every time we listen to another voice apart from God's, every sin we've ever committed, every transgression, every time we went our own way, nailed to the cross in Jesus. God dealt with it in the person of Jesus and as such, God's faithfulness to His Word, to His voice, to His promise, is the Word made flesh. Jesus, He's the faithfulness of God on display. God's promise to Abram was not so that He could just give a childless couple a family. It was to deal with the sin of Adam in the world, the problem of evil. 
Jesus. He's the faithfulness of God to that promise. And as such, Jesus represents a whole new way of being human. He is the new humanity. He's not a resuscitated corpse, but one on whom death no longer has a hold. He's the substance and reality of what Abram looked to by faith, but died without seeing. Jesus defines what's real, what's possible, what the future will look like. Not what we see presented to us in the news or in our jobs or through our friends. Not the voices of accusation we hear all the time. Because in Scripture, there's a power who opposes God, the Satan. And that name literally means the accuser. He's the one who stands before God and accuses us. But you and I, through the power of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we are free from accusation. Jesus has defeated the devil at the cross. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb. And guess what? Through faith in Christ, God's verdict over us today is righteous. Free from accusation. We are no longer in Adam's family, but we belong to Christ. We are no longer on a one-way trip to eternal separation from God, but have been made new and welcomed into His family. Through faith in Christ, God has declared us to be righteous in His sight. And I think... There are many times in my own life, and, and for many of my Christian friends, I guess this is, this is how we live. We don't live as if that voice is true. We live as if the voices of consumerism or secular humanism, the voices of our mistakes, the voices of our past, we live as if those voices have the final say. Abram's faith had came through an encounter with the Word of God, and he was reoriented around the voice of God. And friends, today we encounter Jesus, the Word of God, through the Scriptures. Not exclusively, but God speaks to us through His Scriptures. Because it's through Scripture that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brings us face to face with the Word made flesh. There is no other way to silence the accuser, no other way to get rid of those voices. Not through the power of positive thinking, not through trying harder but simply trusting and relying in the sufficiency of the Word made flesh, power of Jesus on the cross. It's the only way. Lastly, as I close, I just want to say that faith in God is, in this story, I take it to see it, is not a passive thing. I don't see it as a case of waiting in a holy huddle for the rapture to happen so we can be whisked off to heaven while the world burns. I think God declared Abram to be righteous so that Abram could then be an agent of God's righteousness in a world dominated by sin. Now that word righteousness, it actually has a a bunch of translations you could have it as. It could be credited to him as righteousness, declared righteousness, or justified is another possible translation. And I think we we know whenever I hear that word justified, coming from a reform background, I hear it as straight away talking about justification by faith. You know, the fact that God justifies us before Him, declares us righteous purely on the basis of our faith in Him alone and apart from any works. So we can't earn our salvation. And that's all good and true. I think there's also a bigger story to tell than that. And I think when we hear that word justified today, I want you to hear one other big word that's probably lacking in the world today. Justice. God has justified us so that we can be justice makers. 
agents of his righteousness, partners with God in his, in his plan of new creation. The text speaks to us of God's justice finally flowing out into the world, of the, the domination of sin, evil, and death finally being stopped, and God's justice and righteousness and goodness being, being go, flowing out into the world and covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. It means we partner with God in His work of new creation, of putting this world to rights. You know, a life oriented around the voice of God is spurred to alleviate suffering in the world, to alleviate, say, the suffering of poverty and those who go without, to those who don't have enough. Because when God puts this world to rights, everyone will have enough. No one will be left without. I'm not trying to sneak salvation by works in the back door, by the way. I'm not trying to guilt trip you into doing stuff at all. We do these things because we've been saved. It's an outworking of our faith in Christ. We're not doing them to try and earn favor with God, but to embody what His world will look like one day. I'm not recommending going and giving all your money away to the poor either or signing up to 20 charities if you can't afford it. Perhaps there might be a, a single parent in your circle of friends or somebody you know uh, that really just needs a break from their kids and they can't afford a babysitter. You know, just by helping them out, you can be an agent of God's righteousness in the world. I think we, we turn justice and, and righteousness into really big things that become insurmountable problems to solve so we feel paralyzed and we do nothing. But there's really small, simple things we can do that start to help embody what God's righteousness and God's new creation look like in the world might mean that after church today, you could invite somebody new to your house for lunch or out to a cafe or to your home group. I often think of people less fortunate as people exclusively poor, lack of money. But I think, you know, there's an old saying that says some people are so poor that all they have is money. Sometimes those less fortunate than us are not people who have less money or resources, but people who might struggle to connect with friends, people who struggle to make friends. In this way, you can partner with God in His work of new creation, of reconciling relationships, of bringing people into the family, into the fold, instead of them being strangers and outsiders constantly. It might mean that you stand with someone whose life is currently dominated by a voice. It might be the voice of a lost job. And they might just really need someone to come alongside them and carry that burden. It might be the voice of a failed relationship. Someone who just is really struggling to get over a broken and hurt relationship. It might mean it might be the voice of a bad investment. And now somebody's retirement is looking uncertain. Standing with them, encouraging them in the gospel. This is the work of new creation. This is partnering with God in His work of new creation. This is an outworking of our faith in God. Carry each other's burdens, said Paul, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. Now as God reorients our lives around Christ as He breathes faith into us, as He makes us new, may the voices that seek to defy His reign and accuse His people be silenced by the power of God's word. May God grant us true rest and fullness of joy in his presence. 
May we rejoice in the knowledge that our salvation is secure in Christ. And may the God who justifies sinners graciously empower us with the Holy Spirit to be his agents of justice and righteousness in the world. Amen. Shall we pray? Father God, you came not to give, make bad men good, but to give dead men life, dead men and women life. Lord, we thank you for the outpouring of grace that you've given us in our lives, that you have made us new. Lord, we thank you that there is nothing we can do to earn that. We simply trust and rely in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Lord, we, we ask that today you would orient our lives around the voice of Jesus, that he would be the voice that dominates our lives, that everything we come to see in life would be seen and listened to and heard through the voice of Jesus and him alone. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, that he died to put this world back to rights and was raised to new life. And we thank you that by simply placing our faith and trust in you, we get to be part of that new creation. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Thank you for that gracious act of mercy. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless the Lord. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.